really appropriate if uh, she'll ask the kids stay. It's been so fun to see these kids growing up and high school. I remember Micah, and he's been such a fixture with the kids. At the, uh, I remember when we were in O'Gorman, he'd always have a pile of kids around him, didn't he? And in youth group and. You know. going to talk about um, in a new message series, the three spiritual laws on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ um, for a number of years, and we talked about the four spiritual laws. We're going to talk about the three spiritual laws, and what we're going to find is there's two different kinds of laws, and we'll find these two different kinds of laws represented. One kind of law represents how things should be. And another type of law represents the way things are. Um, tax laws are examples of should-be laws. It's the way you should fill out um, your taxes. Uh, exemptions we should and should not claim. Documentation we should have. But let's move on from there. That's a little, a little close. Um, but that's examples of how things should be laws. And then there's examples of how things are laws, like the law of gravity. It's just the way things are. You can't fight the law of gravity. It's just the way things are. We find these two kinds of laws reflected in the Bible. And in fact, in this passage, we'll find law written a couple of different times. There's three spiritual laws, but we'll find that there are two different kinds. Two are the, the way things are kind of laws. And one is the way things should be kind of law. Let's read the passage. And today and Friday night and Sunday, we'll talk about it. Paul writes, Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over man only as long as he lives, for example. By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then. If she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the flesh, sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Uh, the law of God, translated simply as law, is an example of how things should be laws. The standard of behavior set down in the Ten Commandments, and that's just a summary of that. And when we hear that type of law here, just called law, the law of God, it's the type, the way things should be laws, the way we should live. And we should not have any graven images. We should not steal or deal falsely. We should not covet our neighbors. And it goes on and on. It's like tax laws. 
things that we should orient our life towards. The law of sin and death and the law of the spirit of life are examples of how things really are laws. They're not things that we should do. It's just describing the way things are. And what we'll find is how these kind of, how this all works out in the passage. Let's see if we can make sense of it. When we read about the law of God in the New Testament, it's referring to the New Covenant. We find there's a couple different things. There's the Old Covenant contains commitments, commandments, and consequences. Um, it contains commitments, commandments, and consequences. The commitments of the in the the covenant that God gave to Moses, God said he would be with his people, that he would travel with them. There were commandments, and they were summarized up in the Ten Commandments. And there were consequences for obeying the law and curses if it was disobeyed. And that is the old covenant. The new covenant is contains commitments and commandments. There are no consequences in the new covenant. That's why it's different. It says, I will be Helios, I will forgive your wickedness and remember your sin no more. There, If you look at the new covenant, it's different from the old because there are no curses. There are only blessings. Um, these are likened to do different kinds of husbands. To be married to the law is to be awfully wedded. In Matthew, you take her as your lawfully wedded wife, your lawfully wedded husband. We're not talking about lawfully wedded, we're talking about awfully wedded. And what it seems to say, that if we're married to the law, and we'll have to understand what that means, to be married to the law, to be yoked to the law, it's like being married, awfully married. And um, to be married to Christ is a different experience. That's being happily married. Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And so what we find, if we relate to God under law, it's like being awfully married. It says, so my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. It describes what happens on the cross. It says, you died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. We'll talk this Friday about trading places. What Jesus does on the cross enables us to turn in one husband for another. We go from being married, awfully wedded, to the law of God, to being happily married to the Son of God. But what it will indicate, you can't be married to both of them at the same time. To be married to the law, we can't be married to the Son. To be married to the Son, we can't be married to the law. That's why it says in in verse 4, you died to the law through the body of Christ so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. So here's the way it looks. I'm having a little bit of trouble. There we go. We go from being awfully wedded, and that describes the law of sin and death, to being happily married, the law of the spirit of life, by being lawfully widowed. And that's what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. That's what we'll talk about today. We'll talk about Friday, and we'll talk about next Sunday. And that's the significance of what Christ did on the cross. Again, if you ask, what did the cross accomplish? What happens on the cross? We're forgiven, but how are we forgiven? How does it work? Here's what it indicates. At the cross, our relationship 
the relationship to all who believe in Christ changes. Look what it says. You died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. And it says to him who was raised from the dead in order that you might bear fruit to God. So here's what our outline for these weeks is. Awfully wedded, lawfully widowed, happily wedded. That's what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. Um, awfully wedded. It's strange that Paul would identify a holy influence as being destructive, but this is what he's saying. It might seem like an overreaction. And Paul's thinking, he indicates to be married to the law of God is to be awfully wedded. Let's attempt to understand why. It says, for when we were controlled by the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. That's in Romans chapter 7, verse 5. Let me read that again. So it says, when we were controlled by the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. You know what it means? And this is strange. This is strange. It doesn't seem like it should be this way. But it's indicating that when we relate to God trying to keep the commandments in order to get him to bless us and not disobey the commandments in order to try to get him not to curse us, which is what the Old Covenant says in terms of consequences, you'd imagine that that would help us live more righteous lives, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think that it would help sinful passions to be decreased? And are you reading what I'm reading here? The sinful passions are not decreased by the law, but increased. They're aroused. The sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for that. You're saying, I don't understand. How could something so good have a result that is not good? And we'll talk about that. But for today, what Jesus indicates, and what Paul writes here, is that that's the, the, the law of God stimulates the very passions that it prohibits, which is strange. Look what it says in Romans 7, 7 and 8. I would not have known, Paul writes Romans 7, 7 and 8, I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. The commandment Paul chooses is one that we tend to brush aside. If you think of the Ten Commandments, what do you think of? Don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal. And then the tenth one is the tough one. Uh, don't covet. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet your neighbor's life. Uh, to covet is to be passionate about something, to long for something. Um, we tend to brush it aside and focus on adultery and murder. Um, however, wanting something that your neighbor has is coveting. And to covet is to violate the law and to experience curses. Uh, this creates problems for us um, because we really have a, a difficult time controlling our thoughts. How can you not want what somebody else has? And what it says in the Bible, that is a violation of don't covet. And so if you're like me, you'd say, what, what does God expect from us? And that is the question. There's things that we can control in our lives. And when God says, keep the commandments and I'll bless you, disobey the commandments and I'll curse you, adultery, check. 
maybe. Stealing, check. Dealing falsely, check. In Jesus' day, those things were controllable. The thing that's not controllable is coveting. How do you not want what other people have? And I think to covet then is not, it's really, that's what it's saying. To be discontented where we are and to want what somebody else has. All of us, all of us deal with this. Uh, I think what happens when you want something you're commanded not to want, what do you do? When you want something you're commanded not to want, you try not to want it. I won't want what I see. And what ends up happening, when you cannot not want it, you give up, and what do you end up doing? End up wanting it more. <laughs> so, and, and that seems to be the way it works. It takes different forms. It takes different forms. When we try to control thoughts, it tough. We, sometimes we try hard. We try hard to control it. And that works for a while, and, and then we give up. And then we just kind of, it, it becomes too difficult, and then we give up. And then we, and some of us get stuck between the two things. Many of us, we end up going on a cycle. We try hard, and then we give up. And then we try hard again, and then we give up. We try hard to control things, and it works for a time, but then it gets a little too difficult, and we start to lose steam, and we give up. Try hard, we get on the try hard, give up cycle. Uh, it says in the Bible that the law of God increases sin's power over us, for apart from law, sin is dead. Apart from law, sin is dead. It says the power of sin is the law. Um, again, we might debate this. Isn't it right to obey the commandments? Absolutely it is. You know the tough one? Coveting. Coveting. I think that's why we don't talk about it a bunch. That's the one that's, that's difficult to control. If, you, if we're going to live a life that earns God's blessings, we have to control our thoughts, not just our actions. Uh, it's impossible to do. This is why Jesus died, so that we could be lawfully widowed. Again, this is what he does. The law of God was crucified on the cross. Jesus died so that we could be lawfully widowed and then happily remarried. Look what it says. Um, verse, I died to the law so that I might live to God. This is from Galatians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. I love this verse. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. I don't live. I have been crucified with Christ. Uh, Christ lives in me. It's hard to figure out what that means. Uh, somebody knocked on the door of Martin Luther's house and said, does Dr. Martin Luther live here? He said, no, uh, he died. Christ lives here now. And there is something refreshing about that, but it's difficult to figure out how that works. Um, here's where we hear die to self proclaimed. Die to self. If there's something that you want to do, just bring about the so you don't want to do it. Die to self. So if you want something, don't want it anymore. That sounds good. And Jesus is going to help. I don't experience that working very well. 
that doesn't work very well. And in fact, it's really not what this verse is saying. This verse isn't saying that we should die to self. You know what it's saying? We should die to law. Look what it says. It says, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Listen to what it says. I, it says, I, have, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And again, it's what I say. To be married to the law is to have sinful passions aroused. And the reason why Jesus died on the cross is so that we could relate to God not under the old covenant, but under the new. And this is not just a sterile theological proposition. If we are living to try to control ourselves in order to earn God's blessings and avoid his curses, it's going to create more problems than it solves. That's what the, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is law. And the reason why Jesus died so that we could relate to God, not under law, but according to a new covenant. So that's what it's saying. Not that we die to self, but that we, that we die to law. That's what the passage is, is indicating. In order to live for God, we need to die to law. God nailed his law to the cross. Look what it says in Colossians 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. I think that describes the law of God. Um, and again, it's not that God doesn't want us to keep the commandments, but no longer do we keep the commandments in order to be blessed by him. That's an old covenant. It's been replaced by a new one. And it's important that we understand that. It goes on, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon or a Sabbath day. Um, believing Christ alters our relationship with God's law. And it says, therefore, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, celebration, or a Sabbath day. Um, I guess what it means, don't let anyone blow you up for mowing your lawn on Sunday. And, you know, that's, a, an, ex that's an easy one to do. I think it's broader than that. Um, don't go to church because you have to. Don't go to church because you think God will punish you if you don't. Or he'll bless you more if you do. Why should you go to church? Go to church to get to know him. Develop a relationship with him. You know what somebody said? Rules without relationship yields rebellion. Rules without relationship yields rebellion. That's why we've been lawfully widowed. Because we can't see God as a list of rules and relate to him as a person. It's one or the other. We can't be married to rules and be married to Jesus at the same time. And that's why what it indicates here that um, don't let anyone judge you. If you go to church because you have to, you may never go to church because you want to. You want to get to know God. That's a reason to go to church. Develop a relationship with him. If you develop a relationship with God, will it help you in terms of the way you live? Will you love yourself better? Yeah. Will you love others better? Yeah. And really, that's what he, that's what he wants. Um, it says, Romans chapter 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, 
Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Um, we've been awfully wedded, and lawfully widowed in, in order that we could be happily remarried. Um, it says, condemnation. There is not, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you what that means. There's a word for judgment in the Bible, and it means everything from identifying what you're doing wrong and doing right to being sentenced for that and for punishment to be meted out. All that, that whole from for to aft is represented by the word condemnation. It's not just saying when it says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ that you're not going to get punished. It's not just saying that. It's saying as well that you're not going to be sentenced. And it says before that you're not going to be judged by him. There is no judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. Again, this sounds weird, sounds scary, because we're used to thinking that God's counting our sins, keeping track, trying to put in what this verse indicates is that's not the way it is. It was the way it is in the old covenant, but not with the new. He is merciful to our unrighteousness and remembers our sins no more. And that's a different thing, isn't it? There's therefore now no condemnation. It's not just no punishment. It's not just no sentencing. He's not counting. He's not thinking of the thing you did yesterday and the thing you did two days ago. It's not registering. He's not judging it. If we believe that, really, what would that do? Does that seem frightening to believe to you? Really. It frightens me a little bit. Used to more. It would seem that unless we believe that God is judging us, what keeps us from doing right things? What keeps us from doing wrong things and not doing right things? If we didn't have the sentence of judgment hanging over our head, what would there be to cause us to obey? Here's what God says to you. I'm putting my law on your mind and writing it on your heart. What would it do if you believed that more? That's part of the new covenant. He says, I am putting my law on your mind and writing it on your heart. I am bringing about changes in you. He says, I will be your God and you will be my son and daughter. And I will cause you to know me. Sometimes we're afraid that we won't get to know God. We don't know the Bible very well. You know, we don't know it as well as somebody else does. And, and we think that we're never going to get to know God. You know what God says to you? I will cause you to know me. And it's talking about you and you and you. You won't have That's what it indicates. What would happen if you believed that? You know what it might do? You might be less afraid that you wouldn't get to know him. It says, I will forgive their wickedness, the Helios, and remember their sins no more. Um, what would that do if you believe that? You know that sin you're thinking of? The sin that you did? And we're all aware of things that we do. 
if you believe that God forgave it, it wasn't counting it. You know what would happen? We could have a relationship with Jesus. Um, that's what the Bible seems to indicate. Uh, this isn't a once and done. How can we tell if we have more to learn? How can we tell if we have more to learn? There's a couple things that we do when we are awfully wedded. There's a couple things, a couple cues. It's very hard for us to be honest with ourselves when we're happily, awfully wedded. We tend to shove things down and not be very honest with ourselves or with others. Hypocrisy is something. If you have a hard time admitting that, you know, I struggle. If he's not counting, it's not as difficult to be honest, is it? If your acceptance isn't in the balance, then you can be a little more honest about things. You don't have to shove it aside. So sometimes we, we, we push things down or we point our finger at somebody else. And some of us have a hard time coming to grips with our own stuff. And so what we end up doing is we end up thinking about what others are doing. And either one of those is an indication. Now, again, all of us deal with this stuff. But to the degree we deal with hypocrisy and judgment, what Jesus would tell us, you're not married to that person anymore, the judgment. We, we judge this way and this way because we feel judged this way. But if you, if you eliminate judgment this way, you know what ends up happening slowly? You end up being a little more gentle with yourself, a little more understanding with yourself a little more gentle with yourself. You know what happens when you get when that starts to happen? It becomes easier to become gentle to others and more gentle to self. Um, someone who claims to be free in Christ, and we all, but dealing with judgment and hypocrisy is an issue. I remember I, I was talking to this, this guy and um, learned that he I told you about this before. He he went to the county jail, and um, he gotten he was he grew up in church, and um, and hung around with a grab, bad group of kids, and and ended up being in a place that he shouldn't be. And when they got arrested, he was arrested with them. Not a bad kid, just the wrong place at the wrong time. But he ended up going into the county jail, and I went to visit him. And at that time, I went and talked to him, and he was in solitary confinement, and he had asked to be placed there. And I said, what's going on? And he goes, I'm very afraid to be in here, and I'm going to stay in solitary confinement so I can be protected. And I said, okay. And then we talked about it, and we talked about um, his background. And I asked him about growing up, and he said, you know, I was never able to do all the things that I needed to do in order for God to like me. And I always ended up doing things that, that he didn't want me to do. And then we looked at, well, you know, there's a difference between the old covenant and the new one. I, I pointed it out, really, just turned there. In Hebrews chapter 8, I said, here's what God says to you. He puts his law on your mind and writes it on your heart. And he'll help you to know the things to do and be able to do them. He'll be your God and you'll be his son. Uh, he'll cause you to know him. And then we get to the last, and he will be non-reactive to your wickedness and remember your sin no more. And he said, what was that? It, it, it is true. true what was that again? He says he will be helios, non-reactive to your unrighteousnesses and remember your sin no more. 
said, are you telling me that he won't be conscious and he won't keep on thinking about what I've done wrong? That's what it says. I've never heard that before. And I wondered why he hadn't. Jesus said, this is a new covenant in my blood. This is why Jesus died. So that the old covenant can be replaced by a new one. I say, I'm not sure why you haven't heard this, but then he said, you know what? I'm going to think about this. I went back a couple weeks later. said, how are things going? And he said, I asked to be let out of solitary. I said, why? He said, you know what? I never believed God was with me because I could never do the things I wanted him to do or avoid the things he didn't want me to do, and I never felt like he was with me. But if what you said is true, that he's going to be with me, then he goes, and he, I remember him saying this to me. What do I need to be afraid of? He's with me here. And he asked to be let out of sight. I'm not sure what happened. No, he struggled, but we all find it. That's where the strength of this come. I'm going to ask the uh, worship team to come forward. There's a couple different kinds of laws. There's the laws as things should be and the laws as things are. What it indicates, our relationship to the law of God will determine whether our relationship is characterized by sin and death or spirit of life. This Friday, we'll talk about trading places. And next week, we'll talk about being connected to the law of the spirit of life. Well, ask Jesse and Sheila to come up. <coughs> come on up. you got to come up here. Come on up, Jesse. Well, I'm at your crisis here. <laughs> come on. <laughs> Going to um, tell you a little story. We're creeping up on 20 years. Uh, we, we started out, you know, going on 20 years ago. Gary Milner was a worship leader. Some of you remember Gary. And part of his first team, Brett and Jesse, and... Gary got to the place where other responsibilities made it so that he couldn't continue on as worship leader, and then Brett and Jesse stepped forward and uh, took the mantle of leadership and, and did that for a number of years, and then Jesse had kids. Brett had kids, too. Uh, Brett, Brett. And uh, that and other responsibilities made it so that they couldn't continue to be in leadership. And then we had so many gracious people come forward and and come together, but we didn't have one person to, to to ride herd on what happened. We came to a place where I know that there was somebody musical, Sheila, I know that comes from a musical family, and she had led worship before. And I asked her, Sheila, would you think about um, giving leadership in worship? And and Sheila thought about it. She said yes. I remember for, in both cases how thankful we were for Brett and Jesse and how thankful for Sheila and they. And the thing of, I guess I appreciate about them a couple of things. Um, faithfulness, you know, it's a week in, week out kind of thing when you have the mantle of leadership, but there's something, there's something more with them. It's not true of everyone who leads worship. I think Sheila described it as transparency. Jesse would say the same thing. It's it's wanting to be in a position to deflect attention or reflect attention. There was a story about this guy 
uh, a Swiss teacher named Pestalozzi who um, taught kids and he came to the end of his tenure in this Swiss village so that they kind of built a monument in his honor. And so the family gathered and so they had this monument and there was Pestalozzi and, and he was a school teacher so he had a, a, a book, a Bible, and, and, and there was children around and they were looking up at him. And his family said, well, that's not going to do at all. And they told him how it needed to change. And so they went and they made the changes. And then they had another one of these. And so then what they did, it, the kids were still there and the book was still there. But he wasn't, they weren't looking at him. Pestalozzi was pointing up. And, and they were looking past him to the God whom he served. And, and Jesse and Sheila, they don't stand in the spotlight, but you do reflect that. And it's probably, if there's anything that I could say about you, it's that your heart is really to worship him and to know him. That's not always true of worship leaders. And they would direct attention not to themselves, but through them and their efforts to the God whom they serve and wholeheartedly. What's happening, you say, okay, Mike, why are you doing this? They're not going anywhere, are they? You know. It was a, um, about three years ago, it was Sheila that uh, got to a place where um, she couldn't lead, and then she asked Joe if he would lead. And she, one Sunday, one Sunday. Thanks, thanks, thanks very much. One Sunday. And, um, and I remember that day, and it was and actually Joe and Nate. And I remember them. I remember them sitting up and, and we were walking around in the back at O'Gorman and I remember hearing, who in the world is that? I looked up and there's Nate on the guitar and Joel singing. And since then, uh, you know, Joel has a huge heart for worship. We're in a position because of a number of changes in both Jesse and Sheila, it began with Jesse, that they're stepping down in terms of worship leadership. And want to recognize that what's going to happen? Joel's going to take the mantle, and he's going to then be coordinating these songs every week. And he won't; they, he will be different teams, and we'll probably see you guys up here every once in a while. But in terms of singular leadership, Joel is going to end up being the worship leader from here on in. And what we wanted to do is let you know that, and um, and we wanted just to recognize you briefly again. These guys, oh man, Jesse—they're both hating this. <laughs> Hey, we have some flies. Come on up, please. We have some. We just have a. Let's stand to pray. pray for us. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for um, these women. Thank you for those who have joined their teams to lead us in worship. Thank you for their hearts and for how you have used them, how you continue to walk with them and, and how they will continue to reflect you to others. You are the one that they serve and it's been wonderful 
to be able to have the benefit of their leadership, knowing that they bring us toward you, and they feel this in a wholehearted way. Thanks so much for them. Continue to, to help us be the people you want us to be. Thanks so much for Joel and his skill and his leadership, his creativity, and, and the, well, how you will use him in the future. In Jesus' name, amen. As you give, give him thanks. Applaud. Come up, come up, thank him. Hope to see you Friday night.